The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Meryl Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. Thank you so much for taking the time, you know, and sharing your time with us today. It's a very, very busy holiday season. And I know you can be very busy and very stressed, and, and so it really means a lot to me that you've decided to join us today. Thank you so much. So today we're going to be discussing the complexities of young adulthood. So whether we refer to them as millennials, emerging adults, delayed adolescence, what's apparent is that due Due to many, many changes, the transition from dependency to independence is, it seems to be taking longer. In many instances, this so-called extra time provides opportunities for young adults to better plan their future. But, you know, it also provides opportunities for increased uncertainty, sometimes increased anxiety, and continued dependence, especially on their parents. So we're going to embark on our exploration of these issues, first with Robert Michael, author of The Five Life Decisions, How Economic Principles and 18 Million Millennials Can Guide Your Thinking. Bob is an economist and the founding dean of the Harris School of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. And he is also a senior fellow at the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. So, Bob... You have spent more than two decades, actually, tracking the lives and choices of young people born between 1980 and 1984. This is the very earliest of the millennials. So what made you decide to focus on this particular group? Because it's such a small slice. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, Good afternoon. Um, It wasn't my decision. This is a decision that the federal government made uh, several decades ago. They started in the uh, mid-1960s taking groups of uh, five, six, seven years of age, surveying them, and then continuing to survey that same age group all the rest of their life, at least well into their retirement many decades later. And then a decade or so after the 60s, they started another group like that. These are called cohorts, everybody born at a particular time. The group that I'm working with here is the cohort that was born, as you said, in the five years, 1980 through 1984. There are about 18 million of those people, and the sample here is about 10,000. And the federal government decided on that 
sequentially. That is, about every 10 or 15 years, they start a new group in order to keep track of young people. And their purpose in doing this study is to track those young people as they get schooled and as they get ready to go into the world of work and then into jobs, what kind of jobs they take, what kind of earnings they have, what kind of uh, transitions they make as they go through their life, including their marriages and their having children and all the things they do in life. And from studying these people over their entire lifetime, the federal government learns much uh, about what kind of policies to implement and what, how to be uh, of help to uh, citizens. So this is a group of people that I've been tracking for the federal government with their support over, as you say, a couple of decades. It's very interesting. I th- I don't think many of us realize that the federal government was invested in collecting data over a longitudinal period of time, um, and then and then drawing inferences from that for for policy. That's very interesting to me. So, what struck you most um, about their lives and and the way that it's changed in this group? Well, I think one of the things that is just overwhelmingly interesting is how different people are in a a large group like this. And let me explain why I think that's relevant and then give you a little detail there. Um, Very often, if a young person, 20-year-old young person, is making a decision and he has or she has friends near that are kind of making a set of decisions, one gets the sense that, well, everybody's doing it this way, so I'd better do it this way. One of the very empowering things about this data set is to see how quite varied the decisions the people in the cohort, uh, how varied those decisions are, whether that's schooling or when to have sex, uh, who, who or what kind of person to form a partnership with, what kind of job to go into, all over the map. And, and that's I think, very empowering to a young person to see that these 18 million people certainly didn't walk in lockstep. Ten percent of them uh, didn't get a high school degree and didn't get a GED, the uh, uh, general equivalency diploma. Another 10 percent got the GED, but that's 20 percent that didn't graduate high school. Another 48 percent graduated high school but didn't go further. Another 25 percent got a BA degree by the time they were in their late 20s. And the Two, three, four percent went on for uh, graduate degrees beyond that. So, if you're if a young person is thinking, well, what kind of what level of schooling is is right for me? I think it's very informing, empowering, reassuring to know that well, the group that's a little older than me, they're in their mid thirties now. Wow, they were all over the map in the decisions they made. So, one really important fact that comes out of studying these people is that, that it's so widespread, the decisions they made, and all those decisions have really important consequences, consequences in terms of subsequent earnings, the kind of jobs they get, the kind of health they're in, the kind of uh, lifestyle they lead. And the government uses that information to figure out things like, well, should we have a different minimum wage for teenagers than uh, older folks? Are they more likely to suffer if the minimum wage is too high or too low? So these data are used by very many people in all political spectrum to do studies and report to the governments and report to their fellow scientists about the behavior of these folks. 
So in listening to this, you have five big decisions. Can you just name them for us? What are the five life decisions that you talk about? The five that I talk about in this book are how much schooling to get, what kind of an occupation or life's work to get into, whether to have a partner and what kind of a partner to have in terms of a bunch of attributes about the partner. The fourth is parenting. Shall I have kids? How many? When do I start? How do I treat them? What kind of parent should I be? What kind of parent am I planning to be with those kids? And then the fifth is health habits. As we all end up doing things that impact our health for good or for ill, and one can imagine them as a set of habits that you form that impact your uh, well-being uh, over the rest of your life. So these are the five, education, occupation, partnering, parenting, health habits. They, uh, they're interconnected. They're complex. They involve a lot of uncertainty, a huge amount of uh, consequence to an individual from them. And uh, at one level, I think the title of my book a little pretentious because it, the title is The Five Life Decisions, not Some Five Life Decisions. On the other hand, when I thought about it with my publisher, I couldn't think of a sixth decision that was as important, as integrated, and involved as these five, nor could I think of one of these that I could leave out and have covered the ground I wanted to cover. So these so, are the five life decisions. So, Bob, we've we've talked a lot about all of this data collection, and the data is going to obviously fed various federal government agencies um, that is helping them make decisions. But I'm, I'm the millennial. Well, I'm not a millennial, obviously, but let's pretend for a moment um, that I'm a millennial and I'm confused about these decisions and I'd like to access this information because I want to figure out what other people have done, um, either at currently or, you know, in the past. How, how do I do that, that? How do I access this information? Well, uh, at one level, it's important to understand that these, all these data are what's called in the public domain. That is, it's not proprietary. I don't own it. It's as available to you or one of your listeners as it is to me. It's available through the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, U.S. Department of, Gov- uh, Department of Labor, and that data are there. Now, the data are, well, really complicated. There's tens of thousands of pieces of information about, in this case, 10,000 people. So accessing it in the sense of, can I get it? The answer is yes, but so what does it mean and how do I use it? That's, that's a harder question. So... I wouldn't think many of your readers would want to go access these data to look something up themselves because it's rather hard. But I do want you and them to understand it's available to them as easily, as directly as it is to me. That said, these data have been used for a lot of years to produce findings in uh, professional journals, and then they are the grist for the courses that one takes in college and in high school that teaching things about the relationship between schooling and earnings, for example. Okay, so a lot of information that your listeners already know has come from these data. 
and the research that's been done on it. So let's talk about the the five life decisions because it would make me very nervous. I mean, it makes me feel like, oh my gosh, if I make the wrong decision, that's it. I'm done. You know, my life is never going to get about back on track again. I mean, what's your response to that? I think you're overstating the problem, and that's good news. It surely is the case that the decisions you make have consequences, and some of those consequences you can't un- you cannot undo. Many of them you can at some cost or some effort, but some of them you just cannot undo. That said, there's not a right or a wrong decision to be made, and there's not one decision that has only good right positive things about it, and another decision you might make that is all wrong with only bad things. If it were that easy, the decision would be easy to make. Typically, we confront, you know, do I go into this occupation or do I not do it? Should I take the job now that I've completed this level of schooling or shall I go on for a little more schooling? There's not a right and a wrong answer there. What is important is that you think through why this would be a good outcome or why that would be a good outcome and what the issues are you want to think about. And that's what this book is attempting to do. It's bringing the science of choice, the science that's used by government, the science that's used by corporations, and taking 10 or so important ideas from that science and talking them through in terms of the decisions about schooling and occupation and partner and parenting and health. And in talking them through, that reminds the reader, the listener, what it is he, she ought to think about. doesn't tell him what to decide, but it helps him know what to worry about, what to think about, how to handle uncertainty. And that then empowers you, that gives you confidence that I understand it well enough that I can influence the outcome to my benefit by making this decision, not that one. It's not that that one would be a terror and disaster, or this one would be perfect, but it does mean that informed and thinking it through, looking at the facts, understanding concepts of how they're going to work, can help you make a little bit better decision. And that's, so you're listening. that's worth a lot. That is worth a lot. You're listening to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Robert Michael. When we return, we're going to be talking uh, some more about these life decisions and also um, Bob's four elements that are involved in making decisions and also some advice for parents who are trying to help their children make these life decisions. Stay with us. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities in health related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. 
Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Bob Michael, author of The Five Life Decisions, How Economic Principles and 18 Million Millennials Can Guide Your Thinking. So before the break, Bob, um, we were talking, beginning to talk about how you know, a good choice reflects four elements. Um, and your four elements are values, preferences, capabilities, and opportunities. But would you explain, though, the difference between values and preferences and why they're important in, in making these life decisions? Sure. Um, your values are an aspect of what's important to you that don't change much over your lifetime, surely not in week-to-week, short period-to-short period. And in my research career over the last 40, 50 years, I've been very impressed with the evidence I've found that when we ask folks what their values are, and then separately ask folks what they do and what's important to them and how they behave, very routinely their behavior reflects those values. People have values, they do act on them, and, well, frankly, if they didn't act on them, they wouldn't be their values. Values don't change. Preferences do. Preferences are the more immediate decision about how important this is to you. Uh, I'll give you an example of a preference that'll change. Um, At some point, you may have sex with somebody and you surely don't want to get pregnant. That's your preference. But at some other point in your life, it might not be that long. It might be a different person. It might be three months later after you've married that person. You have sex with a person and you do want to get pregnant, have have a baby. Your preference for whether or not you have the baby changed. Your values about how you want to raise your child, how you hope your child behaves, what kind of issues and principles you want your child to live by, those aren't likely to change at all. So all the advertising in the world that we run into and can't avoid, they're trying to persuade us to change our preferences, and they do that by implying those better the preferences they want us to take are those that will, in fact, address our own values. What's the challenge for each of us is to figure out what those values are and then to hold to them 
as our preferences bounce around a good bit. Is that uh, responsive? Yeah, I mean, so let's expand that a little bit because during the break we were you we were talking about sovereignty. So expand on that a little bit more. On oh, sovereignty, yeah, mm-hmm. sovereignty is an important concept that isn't, I think, emphasized adequately. Um, sovereignty is the authority and the right to choose. When you, if, if you stop someone in the street or ask yourself, what is sovereignty? You're going to think of a nation that is a sovereign nation. It has a right to say who can or cannot fly over its airspace, who can or cannot enter that country. Okay, sovereignty is the authority and the right to make a decision. Now, my point here is that every one of us is sovereign over our own life. That means... We have the right, the authority, the right, and the responsibility, the obligation, to make decisions in our own behalf. As I say in the book, your mother loves you, and your mother will give you good advice, but your mother does not have sovereignty over your decisions. You do. So you'll get advice from your mother. You'll get advice from your lover. You'll get advice from your priest or your rabbi or your whoever, your mentor, but they're giving you some guidance. But you have the right to decide. And the whole nature of this book is to help you, the reader, you, the listener, be in a position to make better decisions and to recognize that you have that sovereignty. You get to make the decision because you have to live with the consequences. And it's the same issue of responsibility and right to do so as, well, voting. We, we all have, a, if we're citizens, the right to vote. We don't have to vote, but it's kind of foolish if we don't vote. Same here. You have the right to make a, a decision about what kind of a job you want to have, what kind of a partner, what kind of a life you want to lead. And this is a book that is intended to encourage you to understand you have that right, that sovereignty, and then to give you some guidance. Some of the guidance are some concepts and ideas, some principles from the science of choice that government and uh, businesses also use. And part of it is facts based on these millennials and what decisions they made and what the consequences of those decisions have been. With those facts and with those concepts, the hope is you'll make better decisions and you'll feel empowered and proper, correct, right in exercising your right through your sovereignty. So I, th- I think, Bob, that part of the problem with, just part, and people making sovereign decisions, standing by their decisions, um, even though other people around them may disagree, is the element of risk. Um, and do you feel as though this particular um, generation is is more or less risk adverse, um, and and does that enter into their decision making process? The amount of risk they're willing to tolerate and live with. Well, I'm not an expert on that issue in particular. I'll I'll, I'll give you an answer, but I want to preface it by saying that's not my expertise as an economist. Uh, And I I observed that a lot of the risk we face 
whether we're millennials and relatively young folks or older folks. I'm, I'm at a stage of life that retirement is an issue, and I'm impressed with how many people in my age uh, range uh, face uh, uncertainty, anxiety, and the same kind of uh, concerns about decisions they're making when they're in their 60s or 70s as the same kind of issues and anxieties that folks in their teens and 20s and 30s face, different issues, but same kind of thing of uncertainty, a lot of risk, a lot of not knowing. One of the things, though, that's very different today than, say, when I was in my 20s is the amount of information you can get so readily and so easily through uh, the Internet. Uh, Some of it is excellent information that's very valuable, but a lot of it is nonsense. And I think we are now facing a lot of uncertainty and risk because we have trouble knowing which of the facts that come at us are real and which are fake, which advice is worthy of being taken and which is advice that is really couched as in my behalf that is really to sell me a product. And you know, Bob, that, that makes it really challenging. You know, Bob, I find that's a very, very interesting um, and very good observation. I, we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately. So before we leave, I want to ask you just one last question, and that is what are some of the tools that you think parents can use uh, to help their children in making decisions? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, one of the interesting thing to me in the responses I've had from a lot of parents that have read this book and been nice enough to write me and tell me about it is that they find that they want their child to read this book because the book says to the child things that they, the parent, would like to say to the kid but somehow can't get it said or the kid isn't going to take it in. And that's true for my children as well. Uh, A book that's points out that you have the right to make decisions, but that you have responsibilities, and those responsibilities for making those decisions have consequences that will impact you, and will not only impact you, they'll impact your loved ones, your children years hence. And there's a lot of evidence in this book that the decisions that people made in their teens and 20s, 30 years later, are having tremendous impact on their children. So one thing they can do is... Learn a little about these, the science of choice, some of these ideas, uh, the, the importance of compound interest, for example, the importance of human capital, and that learning begets learning. The more you learn early, the easier it is to learn more later, a concept. To take those concepts and attempt to share them with the child by example as well as by talking, and this little book is intended to help parents do that and help parents help their younger adult children learn of some of those tools. Bob, it's been great having you with us. Thank you so much. Um, If people want to find out more information, can you uh, quickly tell us how they can do that? Well, I suppose the best way is buy the book. And the book, I'm told by lots of people, is very readable. My sister said it sounds just like you, Bob. It just sounds <laughs> like I'm sitting here talking to you, and it's really good. So the book, The Five Life Decisions, uh, is available in bookstores and on Amazon and elsewhere. And that, I think, uh, is probably the best way to continue this conversation with me. 
Great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. When we return, uh, Dr. Robert Arnett will be joining us. He has created a a new developmental stage, which he calls Emerging Adulthood. Uh, As a developmental psychologist, I'm very interested in hearing more about this. So stay with us. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Do you understand what really needs to be done for your health? Or like many, are you mostly letting what you hear and see in today's media dictate your healthy lifestyle? It's time to get focused. There is a reason why cancer, heart disease, chronic fatigue, hypothyroidism, and other illnesses are running rampant in our world. Ganino Wellness Radio with Dr. John and Linda Ganino will show you that there are easy, preventative, everyday steps to get you back on track. Listen live every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merle, and we're now here with Dr. Jeffrey Arnett, and he is the author of Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road from the Late Teens Through the Twenties. Dr. Arnett is a research professor of psychology at Clark University in Massachusetts, and he's also the originator, actually, of this theory of emerging adulthood. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, Dr. Arnett. Thank you for having me. Ah, so let, let's just get right to it. So what is emerging adulthood? What is that phase? It's the idea that there's now a new life stage in between adolescence and young adulthood because so many people t- stay in school so much longer, get their first stable job so much later, and enter marriage and parenthood so much later than they ever have before. For most people, that doesn't happen now until around age 30. So there's now this period of about 10 years between the time adolescence ends around 17 or 18 and the time a stable young adulthood begins, close to age 30. And I propose that we need a new name for that period in between, which is not just a late adolescence. 
and it's not a settled uh, young adulthood either. I suggest that we call it emerging adulthood. So when I was in graduate school, I mean, you would learn developmental phases and, you know, you would learn about latency age or early childhood or, you know, whatever the stage was. And and always it had specific characteristics that were attached to that particular stage. Is is, is that so with emerging adulthood? Well, I think in part, I have emphasized that unlike the way stages have been used in the past in psychology, I'm obviously not proposing this as a biologically based stage because I'm saying it just arose in the past 50 or 60 years and it doesn't exist in all countries. So it is very much a product of affluent societies and developed economies where it does take a lot of education and training to prepare yourself for the workforce and where most people don't get married until at least their late 20s, many of them waiting even longer than that. And so I think it's mainly a demographic phenomenon that's defined by later education, later entry to the labor force, and later marriage and parenthood. But then I think it has specific characteristics within each culture that has those demographic characteristics. Interesting. It's very interesting. So I think the kind of prejudices um, of people sitting outside of this, that they see this period of extension you know, extended exploration and work is kind of a good time, you know, oh, please, they're just all having a good time, and it's so much fun for them, and they're just delaying taking on responsibility. So do you think that's an accurate perception of what's going on with emerging adults? Well, I think it's partly true. I think they're well aware that once you take on adult responsibilities like marriage and parenthood and long-term work, you're likely to be in that structure of your life for most of the rest of your life. And so most of them want to use their 20s to do other things, to travel, to to try some adventurous job, say in the arts or uh, in, in the travel industry or something like that. They want to have the time to hang out with their friends a lot and have a series of romantic partners. So I think that's true, but I don't think there's anything that's loathsome or despicable about it. I mean, they often are scoffed at because uh, they supposedly don't ever want to grow up, and I don't think that's true. It's just that they don't want to grow up at 18, and I don't think that's um, wrong-headed or morally suspect. I think it's wise. I think it's smart to use that decade to do things you couldn't do before and probably won't ever be able to do again. But I think where the conflict comes in, at least with uh, some of the families that I work with, has to do with the continued financial dependency. So, you know, it's it's great to travel through Europe and be with your friends and try new things out, but it's it's a it goes on and on um, in many cases with financial dependency uh, on parents who get to a point where they just are uncomfortable and they don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's a legitimate concern. I've been surprised to find in my surveys, including a national survey that I conducted three years ago, the Clark University Poll of Emerging Adults, that parents provide their kids with financial assistance through the 20s, at least on an occasional basis. Most parents do, not all parents. But I think that takes a lot of parents by surprise. I think a lot of parents 
grew up thinking or became parents thinking that they would raise their kids until age 18 and then maybe help them through uh, the college years and then they'd be done. But it turns out they're not done. First of all, when people go to college, it often takes longer than it used to. Many of them don't finish uh, at least the first time and have to go back later. And they get into their 20s and they're often in jobs that don't pay enough money to live on or don't pay enough money for them to live the, the, the way they want to. And so they ask their parents for money. I think it's perfectly legitimate for parents to say at some point, well, you know, we've been providing for you all these years, but now you're going to have to learn to, with, learn to live within the money that you can make yourself. But that's a tough thing for parents to do. I mean, it's a tough thing to cut your kids off and have them live, say, in a more dangerous area uh, of an urban city than, than they would if you provided them with a few hundred bucks a month. Yeah, I think that's true, especially um, in issues of um, safety. And and let's face it, there is a difference, I think, in how, you know, the girls are treated than the boys are treated because, you know, the the girls end up in safer, you know, buildings with doormen and the boys are like wherever yeah, because the prejudices, they can they can handle it. That's okay. They don't need the same safety net around them. Do, Dr. Arnett, do you see a change in roles between the men and women in emerging adults? Well, I've been surprised to find very few gender differences in my research. I thought that there would be a lot more gender differences than I have found in terms of how they see their future lives, how they're planning in terms of balancing work and family. But I've found very little, and I think that reflects other research, too, showing that this is a very egalitarian-minded generation of young people. They at least aspire to have an adult relationship that will be equal. And both the boy, both the young men and the young women aspire to that. They want to share life as equals and both take part in the child care and both be working and developing a career. It gets harder. I mean, the research is showing that it gets harder to execute that once the rubber actually hits the road because when there's a small child to take care of, it still is usually the young woman who either drops out of the workforce or cuts back, and rarely the young man. So in spite of their aspirations, there still is that gender difference when they actually take on, in particular, that responsibility of parenthood. So do you see a change then or a difference uh, in gender in their approach to careers and jobs? Or do you just see a difference in approach to careers and jobs in emerging adults as a whole? Well, I don't really see a gender difference. I mean, the young women are as ambitious as the young men, and the young women are actually exceeding young men in educational qualifications, which in the modern economy is the ticket to career success. You really have to have something beyond high school. It doesn't have to be a four-year degree, but you have to have something that enables you to be competitive in the workforce. And the fact is, young women are, are... Beyond young men, I mean, 58% of America's undergraduates right now are female. Only 42% are male, and they're more likely to graduate as well. So they're actually entering the workforce with an advantage. 
But as I said, that that advantage only lasts until the first child is born in a relationship. At that point, uh, even the more talented, more qualified, more educated young woman in in that relationship will tend to be the one who who stays home at least for a while with a young child. So do you see then any change in their views of relationships, either before they get married or their views on marriage in emerging adults? Well, you know, it's interesting to me how how hopeful they still are. I mean, this is a generation that's grown up seeing half of their parents divorce. And even if their parents haven't divorced, they've almost all seen other couples divorce, either other extended family members or neighbors or friends, uh, friends' parents. But almost all of them still aspire to find their soulmate and live happily ever after. And almost none of them think that divorce is something that's likely to happen to them. It's kind of touching, but it's also a bit worrisome when you think about the reality that about half of them probably will face. Do they go about finding a significant other in a different way? I mean, I mean, if you look at the television, there's just lots and lots of information out there out there on dating sites. It, it would appear as if the process is different for emerging adults. Is, is that accurate? It's accurate, but it's not changing as rapidly as you sometimes get the sense from the media portrayal. I mean, online dating is definitely a thing, and it's just something that a lot of people do, not just in their 20s. Uh, it's actually more likely to be used by people in their 40s and 50s than people in their 20s, uh, because for people in their 40s and 50s, there aren't as many single people around uh, in their immediate environment, so they, they tend to use uh, social media more for that purpose. But it's definitely growing among young people. I did another survey a couple of years ago. This was the Clark University poll of established adults of 25 to 39-year-olds nationwide, and I found that about a third of them said that they had found their current partner through some kind of social media or, or, or dating website. So it's it's still not all of them, and it's not even a majority of them, but it's certainly higher than it would have been a generation ago because these things didn't even hardly exist a generation ago except as the kind of ad, personal ad you would put in a newspaper. You know, it just dawned on me, it might be interesting, and maybe this research is out there, to see the divorce rate of couples who meet online versus the divorce rate of couples uh, who meet in in other ways, or more face-to-face. Is there any... Especially since these online sites try to match people up by similarities, and similarities is one of the things that supposedly... uh, is the basis of attraction in a lot of relationships, according to research. And so you'd think that people who are masked on the basis of all these similarities would have maybe a better chance of making it last. But I don't know of any research that has investigated that question. Okay, when uh, we come back, we'll be examining some things that parents, and I always like to throw in grandparents, um, can do to help launch uh, their emerging adults. Dr. Ornette, just very quickly, um, do you see a difference in the role between grandparents and emerging adults before we break? Well, there's a lot of variation in it, Dr. Merle. There are some who have grandparents 
who live in the household, especially uh, emerging adults and minority families, Asian Americans and, and Latino families. And there's others who barely or hardly ever see their grandparents. So there's a whole lot of variation. They all are fond of their grandparents, but there's a huge range of variation in how often they see them. Okay. We're, you're listening to Call Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merle, and I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Arnett, and we'll be back talking more about emerging adulthood. Stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill Griffin. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Arnett talking about emerging adults. So, Dr. Arnett and I had an interesting conversation during the break offline. So, you know what, Dr. Arnett, let's just get to the hot topics. People may not like us after this, but let's talk about it and, sure. and see where we go. So, one of the um, changes we see in emerging adults is suddenly, for a variety of reasons, they are moving back home again. Um, how do you manage this in a positive fashion? Because it's it's very difficult for both the emerging adults and also for the parents. Well, what I've found works best for parents, what they tell me works best, is to have the discussion about what the guidelines are going to be before the child moves back into the home. So discuss questions like, are they going to pay rent? If so, how much? If they're not going to pay rent, what are they going to do in terms of household responsibilities? That is a key issue because often people have this pattern from childhood where the parents do everything. The parents are the ones who make all the meals, do the grocery shopping, do all the cleaning, pay all the bills. But the parents, I think, quite reasonably expect that once their kids are in their 20s, they will take an adult share of the load. And I think they should. 
I think they should certainly in terms of household responsibilities. There's no reason somebody in their 20s shouldn't be learning to cook and making meals and going to the grocery store and doing the laundry and all of the sort of dreary day-to-day things that we all have to do. In fact, it's good for them to learn those things so they'll be able to handle those things when they're on their own. I think rent is trickier. I mean, by far the main reason for them moving back into the household is that they don't have enough money. Almost all the emerging adults I've ever interviewed over 25 years of studying 18 to 29-year-olds will say they would rather live on their own, but they move back home because they just don't have the money. And if you ask them to contribute rent, I think that's perfectly reasonable. It's your house. They're in their 20s. As long as they're working and making an income, sure, it's reasonable to ask them to contribute rent. But keep in mind that the reason they're there is that they don't have enough money. And so if you charge them rent, it's probably going to be all the longer before they can afford to move out again. You know, I hadn't thought about this for years, but um, one of my uncles actually charged um, a cousin of mine um, some rent when he uh, moved back home again. Um, And there was a lot of discussion. I remember as a kid, there was a lot of discussion in the family about that. A lot of it was somewhat negative. But what he did was very interesting to me. What he did is he he took that money and he actually segregated it into a different account. Um, And then when his son got on his feet, got into a, uh, a good job. He gave him that as a gift for um, to help for a down payment for a house, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was an interesting way of handling that. Yet yeah. we, we, we get into these issues of if I'm providing this for you, then you have to be doing this for me. And therefore, you know, I still have a say in what's going on in your life. Right. right. Where and that is a point I think of conflict. Right. I, I, I think so. I think the emerging adult will say, no, you know, you don't have any right to have a say. I mean, one of the things we were talking about offline was, you know, what happens, especially if someone's, your adult child is living back in your house, when they have a relationship with someone that you don't approve of. I mean, how, how does that, how do, how do you handle that? Oh, it's really tricky. Even if it's somebody you do approve of, you may or may not feel comfortable with your, say, 22-year-old son or daughter having their partner spend the night. Uh, even though parents are not stupid and, and probably were sexually active themselves by that time, they still may not be comfortable with that taking place in their household. And, and again, it's your house. You have the right to say that, but it's tricky. It's from the emerging adult's perspective, it's perfectly understandable that they would want to have uh, a normal relationship. And to, to them, these days, almost all of them, that means sleeping with your partner at least occasionally. So it's, it's really tricky. And if you don't approve of the partner, then it gets, of course, even more complicated. Almost all emerging adults, they really don't want to hear their parents' opinion about their love life. And so they'll often conceal a lot of the information about it. I've, I've even interviewed many who will conceal that they're even going out with somebody until that relationship is four, five, six months old because they don't want to hear their parents' comments about it. But parents, on the other hand, are sometimes legitimately concerned about the person their their emerging adults is, is getting involved with. I can just tell you, emerging adults are almost never going to want to hear it. 
no matter if it's good advice or not, that's a part of their life, that's a domain that they really feel is none of your business and should be theirs to decide. So let's talk about technology for a quick minute. So uh, because it seems as if that's part of the problem in communication between emerging adults um, and parents. So I often hear parents complain, you know, I ju- actually, I just heard this yesterday. I was sitting in my living room and my son is upstairs and he's texting me, what's for dinner? You know, <laughs> you know, she, she said, I got really aggravated and I texted back, you know, if you, you know, if you want to know what's for dinner, walk downstairs, you know, don't text me. <laughs> uh, that's a great example. And it's true. I mean, they're very tied to their devices. And we all are, quite honestly, if we're, if we're all really honest about it, all of us probably spend more time on our, on our devices than we really should. But it's certainly partly generational. They spend the most time of all on their devices, uh, far more than their parents or grandparents do. But it, it has a real positive side, too. I mean, the part that you're mentioning is definitely an irritation, but there's the positive, positive side, too, which is that, you know, it used to be that once your kid left home, you might see him or her, you know, a few times a year, and maybe every once in a while there'd be a long-distance phone call that you try to keep as short as possible because it was so expensive. Well, now it's so easy to keep in contact on a daily basis through our devices. And I found that that's a really nice thing for both parents and emerging adults because it's a sort of low-key form of contact that makes them both feel connected but not in an overbearing or intrusive way, at least in most cases. Dr. Arnett, I wish we had more time with you. Uh, This has been a very, very interesting topic. So if people want to find out uh, more information about emerging adulthood and about you, how would they do that? They could go to my website, which is jeffreyarnett.com, or they can go to the Society for the Study of Emerging Adulthood website. That's S-S-E-A.org. And your last name is spelled A-R. I'm going to spell it for people. A-R-N-E-T-T. Uh, and, the, and the book is Emerging Adulthood. Dr. Arnett, any last thoughts for us? Well, I, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I would, I would just say as a final thought, try to resist the negative stereotypes. It's really a wonderful part of life in many ways. And it's a time of life when, for most people, relationships get a lot better with their kids than they had been in adolescence. And so enjoy it for, for the good parts of it. They're, they're really so full of life and so full of hope for the future. It's, it's a quite wonderful quality in many ways. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey Arnett, Emerging Adulthood. I remind you to watch us on Facebook Live. And as always, I ask you to do just one thing, just one thing for yourself, whether it's to walk outside for just five minutes or just take a depth deep breath, you know, and think about what's really important to you this week. But in order to keep caring for all these people, including these emerging adults, you've got to take care of yourself. So take good care of yourself. You're very important to a lot of people. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.